Thank you for joining the Faith Chapel podcast. Wherever you may be joining us, we hope you know you are loved and that this message encourages you. A pastor friend of mine, he asked some questions to some non-believers, some non-church-going people. And one of the questions that he asked them, he said, what is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And here's their answers. It means attending church, then the more you attend, the better you are. Christians are angry, right-wing extremists. Christians are radical and closed-minded. Christians are mindless, unintelligent fools. If you're a good person and you do good deeds, then you're a Christian. Christians have long hair, long dresses, no makeup, and no fun. Christians are goody two-shoes who think they're better than everyone else. Christians are hypocrites who say one thing and then they do another. Christians pray all the time and they're out of touch with culture and their society. Now, I don't know what those words do to you and I don't want you to pick up an offense. But I don't believe that that accurately defines what a Christian is. It may be the way that we are living our lives that are causing people to say those things or think those things about us. But that's not what a Christian is accurately. In fact, if we could sum it up from a biblical perspective, what is a Christian? A Christian is simply this. It's someone who has given their entire life to following Jesus. They've given their entire life to following Jesus. And if we're going to be serious about that, we're going to give our entire life to following Jesus, then we have to know what Jesus' life was all about. What did he say? And more importantly, what did he command those that followed him to do? That's what it is to be a Christian. And our church's mission here, you've heard me say it earlier, but it's to connect people to Jesus. And listen, we strongly feel, we strongly feel that reached people should reach people. That if God has done something in our life, or if God has done something in your life, that we should share what God has done in our lives. That we are truly to be the salt and the light of the earth. That we're to be a, a city on a hill, and we're supposed to let our light shine, and it cannot be extinguished. It's for all to be able to see. We're to be a change agent, an influencer in our community. That we're to let people be able to examine Christ's life through our lives because we're living such a holy and exemplary life that it causes people to take note and that they want to have what we have, that they see our lives and they're drawn to something inside of us and that causes us to be able to tell them that it's the only the person of Jesus. Reached people, say it with me, reach people. And I want you to turn to John chapter three where it all began. And while you're turning there on your tablet or iPhone or electronic device, your Bible, I want to I give you some background information I think that will be incredibly important for all of us. Because this is a familiar passage of Scripture. And so it's easy for us to read through it. It's easy for us to look at these familiar passages and to kind of glimpse over them and miss the entire meaning and the importance of what's going on in this moment. You see, this is a message that Jesus was sharing with a man that night. And it's interesting that it wasn't a message that was given to a large crowd, although Jesus preached to large crowds. 
It wasn't even a small crowd or even in a small group of people. It was a private conversation that was had from someone who was asking questions, someone who was being honest about their, their faith in God and saying, and they were coming to Jesus and they were wanting to ask these questions about eternity. When we look at this conversation and we look at what's going on, there's a lot at stake in this moment. In fact, this man was probably the most unlikely person to share this message with, maybe in all the world, which to me makes it even more powerful and more compelling. Most of you already know this man's name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was, he was an important and wealthy community leader. He was from the old school money of the Jewish circles. He had an incredible home life, an incredible background. He was an elite scholar. He had become a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee. He was a part of the Jewish ruling council. What that meant was is that if you had a question about the Bible or about all the laws that were there and how you were to apply those laws to your life, you would go to him. He knew the answer. That's how smart this man was. Theologians believe that he was one of the most famous of all the Jewish teachers in the Jewish circles of his day. He had a good background. He was born into a good family. He was intelligent. He had all the academic credentials to back up his position. But something in his life wasn't quite right. It wasn't quite whole. There was something in his life that was missing. Listen, despite all that he had, all of his successes, all of his training, all of his education, all of, all of his, his influence and his power and his position in the community, in spite of all of those things, there was still something on the inside that left him empty and unfulfilled. He'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard Jesus' teachings. He'd heard about the miracles that Jesus had performed. He had all the background, he had the bucks, and he had the brains. But he was drawn to seek out answers that had yet to have the solutions in his own life, in his own heart. The people that he belonged to, the Pharisees, they had some very strong feelings about who this Jesus was. But Nicodemus, he wasn't, he wasn't pressured by the peer pressure of his day, those that were around him. Somehow his own curiosity, the questions, the emptiness of his own heart and soul caused him to try to take a step even beyond the pressures of that moment. So he decided to approach Jesus one night, in the middle of the night, the scripture says, in secret. Why did he do it in secret? Because he had so much on the line if the ruling council knew that he was meeting with this hypocrite, Jesus, he would, lose, he would lose his status, he would lose his social position, he would lose his job, and he would be banished from the temple forever. Meeting with Jesus for Nicodemus brought an incredible risk. He was risking everything, literally, in his life that he knew and that he had grown and that he would have captured and that he would have brought into his life. Up to that moment, he was risking everything everything to have this one encounter with Jesus. Doesn't that change things for you? This isn't a happen chance, happen chance kind of meaning. This is a, a, a lostness in someone that causes them to put everything on the line to go meet with the very source of all this teaching, Jesus himself, so he can find out how to get to heaven. How do you get to heaven? We find this out in John chapter 3. 
And I'm going to start with verse 2. Rabbi Nicodemus says, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, and for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. But Jesus jumps right to the quick. He said, Verily I tell unto you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And you can almost hear the sarcasm now in Nicodemus's voice as he replies, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus, verily, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born both of the water and of the spirit. Listen, for the flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. And otherwise, you wise and Jewish teacher that knows all the laws, that follows all the laws, that instructs people in all the laws, you're operating in the flesh. Your religion and your religiosity has nothing to do about a relationship with, with, the, with your heavenly father. The things that are born of the flesh will stay in the flesh, but the things born of the spirit, that will impact, that will influence, that will help the spirit to grow. He's taken this beyond his religion into a relationship that only happens by asking the one true living God into his life. Verse seven, you should not be surprised by my saying, you're smart, you're intelligent, you know the scriptures that you must be born again. Verse eight, for the wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or even where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He says, how can this be? Verse 10, Jesus says, you are, the, you are Israel's teacher. You should already have this down. And you do not understand these things. For verily, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. For I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. Now how... how how then will you believe if I speak about heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lit up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes me have eternal life. And then this famous passage of scripture that's behind almost every goalpost on Sunday mornings and like Tim Tebow used to wear it in the black of his, you know, on, write it on the black of his eyes before he'd go out and play football. We see it all over, and most of you probably haven't learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. And it's kind of the end of the story. But what was Jesus trying to communicate? What was Jesus teaching in Nicodemus that day? What was Jesus trying to teach us that day by preserving it in Scripture? In your notes now, lessons from an honest seeker. I think the first thing Jesus was trying to get him to understand, the first lesson is this, is that love begins with God. For God so loved. 
God so loved. Humanity didn't love God. In our lostness, in our depravity, in our darkness, we didn't love God, but God loved us first. God loves you. Can you just turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you. Turn to your other neighbor and say, I know you don't believe me, but God loves you too. God so loved. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God's love is the only, one of the only constant things that is in your life. Whether you believe it, whether you're labeled to live that out, whether you're able to receive that truth or not, it doesn't change the fact that it is true, that God loves you unequivocally. He loves you in your strengths and in your weaknesses, in your good times and in your bad times. When you've succeeded and when you fail, God still loves you. When you're a nobody on the street or if you're a somebody in somebody's eye, God still loves you. If you have money or you don't have a nickel to rub together, God loves you. Whether you're the most educated man on the planet or the least experienced person here, God loves you. God loves you. In fact, you're the first thing on his mind every day. The Bible says that God rejoices over you. Think about it. That you're the highest form of his creation. That he's made you above the angels. That his love is constant. That his love is always wooing you to himself. That he's always revealing himself in all of nature. and all that we go around and we see. That he puts people in our path. And these are the things that God does for us because of his great love for you. Amen. You may not even know what real love looks like. Maybe your upbringing, maybe your path, maybe your journey so far in life, you haven't had anybody love you unconditionally. But can I tell you, there is a heavenly father who loves you unconditionally. There's a heavenly father. It doesn't matter whether you've succeeded or failed. It doesn't matter you've made good choices or poor choices. He loves you just the same, just the way you are. You say, how, pastor, how is that possible? Because God doesn't have to try to love. God is love. In 1 John chapter four, it says, dear friends, let us love one another for this love comes from God. What is he saying? He goes, I know there's people in the church that are unlovable and I know you can't drum it up and I know you can't fake it very good. But if you love from the love of the Father, the love of God that's in you, then we could all learn to love one another. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. Listen, because God is, he's love. It's his very nature. It's not an attribute. It's not a characteristic. It's who he is. He knows no other way than to be loving. You make a mistake, he goes, I love you. You make an incredible poor choice and a decision, he goes, I love you. Maybe you didn't get that when you were growing up, huh? But your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. That's what the agape kind of love looks like in scripture. That it is not dependent upon me at all. That all I need to do is receive this incredible, free, and incredible gift. The love of God in my life. For God so 
loved. God loves all of us all over the world. Every kindred, every nation, every tribe, every language, every group of people, every small tribe that's on a mountain somewhere or in a valley low. Maybe there's so few people that we haven't even found them yet as happened a year ago in South America. Maybe there are so numerous of people that everybody knows them. I don't, God loves every single one of them. And what did that love do? Look in your notes, number two. That love then made us the object the object of his love. For God so loved what? He so loved the, the world. Cosmos is the world. There's the Greek word there. It's every single person in it. Black and white and rich and poor. People with every skin type and every background and every social background and every kind of training. He loves them all. He loves the entire world. You say, me? Yes, you. There was an older guy that came to me years ago when I was young in ministry. He says, Pastor, I want you to know that God loves you the best. Well, I liked hearing that. I mean, who doesn't want to be the favored child in the family? Amen. I said, I'll receive that. And then he looked at me and he smiled because I didn't get it. And he says, and I want you to know God loves me the best. I said, hey, wait a minute. At that moment in my life, in that moment in my mind, I only had a category for one best. Because that's how we tend to think. Like in football this year, there was only one team that walked out with a Super Bowl, right? Out of the Super Bowl with a trophy. There was only one best team. And it wasn't the Patriots. Amen. It wasn't the Patriots. They just got lucky, those guys. Man. Tom Brady. That's all you can say. That guy. But when I thought about what he said, it caused me to realize that God being who God is, that God can love every single one of us as the best. He loves you the best. But because he's God, he can love me as the best too. God so loved the world. All of us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. See, God is not wanting any to perish, but all to come into everlasting life because he loves all of us. Number three. The third lesson is that the sacrifice, what is the sacrifice of God's love? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, I, I don't, I don't, pretend to know the depth of that statement right there. In fact, I have three sons. And you might say if you were in a certain circumstance or situation that required, you say, Pastor, would you give one of them so that, so that we could live? And you, you, you would have two others. I'd say, heck no. No, I'm not. That's, 
my son, my son. And when Joe was born and I was in the hospital that night and Jennifer had had a cesarean, so she was still medicated and laying there sleeping and it was just Joe and I, not even 12 hours old. And they said, keep him, keep him in his crib and let him get adjusted to that so he'll sleep and when you take him home and I'm like, no. <laughs> as soon as the nurses got out of that room, I picked him up and I brought him over to where my bed was. I had him laying right up here beside me. And two o'clock in the morning, I'm just praying over him and I'm my new dad, firstborn son. God says, will you give him back to me? I said, No. God, I'm not sure what that means. I don't want to do that. If I'm being honest in that moment, a reason why I didn't know is I didn't know if that meant that he had some disease or if he, you know, he's going to die early and go to, I didn't know. All I knew was this was the most precious gift that I'd ever received in my entire life. And to want to share that with anybody else seemed completely foreign to everything that I was feeling in my heart. No, God, no. God says, though, do you trust me? I said, God, I trust you with everything that I have. He says, then trust me with your son. Tears streamed down both sides of my cheek and I lifted him up. I said, God, you can have him. Whether it's for one day or a hundred days or a hundred years, that I get to share this life with him. But you can have him. And the Holy Spirit came in that room and fell upon us. See, I don't know what it would be like to be God to say, here is my one and my only son. You can have him world. That despite all of your ugliness, Despite of your sinfulness, despite of your depravity, despite your darkness, despite your evil doing, despite your wrongdoing, despite all that you are, because the heart is desperately wicked above all things, and there is no cure for it, Scripture says. Who can know it? I'm going to go ahead and give you my one and only son. Here he is. How much did God love you? He loved you so much that he gave his one and only son to die for you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's that verse conveying? saying, before you even get it, before you even understood you were lost, before you even understood that you were heading the wrong direction, before you, he said, I went ahead and sent the remedy. I sent the solution. I sent my son for you. Jesus told us while he was here in Mark 10, 45, he said, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. Why did he come? He, come to give, he, he came to give his life away, to die. Look at number four. 
I think the fourth lesson, final lesson, and we'll wrap it up, is everyone can receive God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What's it going to say? That whosoever believeth upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes, whosoever believes. See, we tend, to, we tend to look at people and we put them in categories. So let me just ask you, who's more deserving of God's love, Tim Tebow or Jihadi John? Is it Billy Graham or is it Adolf Hitler? Is it Mother Teresa or the Ayatollah? Who's more deserving of God's love? Their answer is none of us are deserving of God's love. But the answer also goes beyond that. And it says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever I provided, he said, the remedy to your darkness, to your lostness, to your perishing. That whosoever believes upon me, though you are dying, and though you are headed in the wrong direction, though you, are, though you are in lostness of your own sin, he said, you will find everlasting life. That's the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the big idea. Here it is. And I get to preach two weeks on missions, which is, yes, so I'm setting it all up for next week. But here it is. You ready? In your notes. Since Jesus died for everyone, we can't eliminate anyone. Who deserves God's love? Everyone. And since Jesus died for everyone, we can't eliminate anyone. Well, Pastor, you, you, don't, you don't know some people that are in my family. <laughs> well, I don't, but I got some in mine too. <laughs> you don't know how my boss treats me. You don't know how my mom or my dad treat me. You don't know what my spouse does to me when we're not in church. You don't know what our neighbors across the hall do in our apartment company. You don't, Pastor, you don't know. You don't know. Let me just ask you, did Jesus die for them? Then if the gospel doesn't, if the gospel of truly Jesus died for everyone, then we can't eliminate anyone. And maybe it says more about who we are and where we are than where they are. And just maybe you're the answer to the prayer that God wants to use in their life. Maybe you're the one that God wants to reach out because the Bible says that God has given every single one of us the ministry of reconciliation as though God was making his appeal through you. And whether it's across the ocean or whether it's in your backyard, whether it's the world and the nations or whether it's right here in San Diego, you are called to reach lost people. And the most important thing to God is lost people. Listen to me. Jesus came that he might give his life for lost people. And you matter to God and he rejoices over you and he's glad that you're a part of his family. But you're going to spend eternity in heaven and we're going to spend eternity in heaven together. Maybe that God didn't create it in such a way that we just need to lump together in a bunch of small groups and sing Kumbaya until we die or he comes back. Because maybe if we're just going to spend eternity together, maybe we'll have plenty of time to catch up. 
But maybe really what's more important is that we intentionally engage lost people and be Jesus to them. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that whosoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. Pastor Charlie, a few months ago when he talked about his wife and then our first missionary speaker talked about it and it comes back to mind this morning. But I think the reason we don't have the passion and the compassion for lost people, whether it's here or around the world like we should, is because we truly don't value people the way God values people. God values people. He really does. And since Jesus died for everyone, we can't eliminate anyone. So before you leave here today and before we close, and if the worship team would go ahead and come on up, but who is God putting on your mind and on your heart right now this morning? Who are you supposed to begin to pray for right now with earnestness of your own heart? That the Holy Spirit would begin to minister to them. That the Holy Spirit would bring about moments in their life, redemptive moments. What are you doing to reach out and intentionally develop relationships with lost people right here? Let me go back to Nicodemus and I'll close this up. The story really didn't end in John chapter 3. For we see Nicodemus again in John chapter 7. And, and the Pharisees had sent out the temple guards. And they said, go out and check up on this one Jesus. And go out and find out what's going on. And if you can catch him being heretical, if you can catch him saying anything blasphemous, if you can, if you can, if you can catch him doing anything at all, then, then capture him, bring him to us so he could stand here among us. Arrest him, in other words. The temple guard goes out, and they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees are mad. You can sense it as you read it in John chapter 7, around verse 50, the story. And, is there, and they're frustrated, and they said, where is he? Why have you come back to us empty-handed? They said, you don't understand. We have never heard anyone who speaks like this man. We don't know anyone who talks about the kingdom of heaven like this man. We don't know anyone that is as powerful as this man. So we left him alone. And then Nicodemus speaks up. And Nicodemus, he says, isn't it? Isn't it our law that says that we cannot condemn anyone without first hearing him and finding out what he's doing? There seems to be something happening in Nicodemus' life. He's taking a stand, a greater stand. Not long, no longer is he in the middle of the night in secret. Now he's standing up in front of all of his, all of his, all of his, you know, the rest of the Pharisees that are there. 
He's making a statement. Listen, doesn't the law state? We got to know him first and know what he's doing. And then one last verse. Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus has been crucified on the cross and he's still hanging there. And Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and he says, he says, let me take Jesus, Jesus down and let me bury him in a tomb. But we need your permission for that to happen. The sun is setting, it's almost Sabbath, please. Pilate says, yes, you can take his body. So Joseph of Arimathea, he makes his way to where the cross was. And the Bible very clearly says, and Nicodemus was with him. There seems to be something going on in Nicodemus's life. That what started out as a searcher, what started out as someone who was asking questions, that now publicly makes his way to the cross, helps him take Jesus' body off that cross, carries him to that tomb, and helps lay him there in a grave. And I'm just wondering if maybe you're in that same place. Because see, Jesus is for everyone. Nicodemus, he had the background. He had the bucks and he had the brains. He had it all. And maybe you think you have it all. But can I tell you, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So many times we think the gospel is just for the down and trotted, the down and out, or those who are down on their luck, those who are struggling. And many times that causes people to take note of what's really happening in their life. And many times that causes people to come to Jesus. But can I'm here, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is for everyone. He's for everyone. And if you don't know him, like Nicodemus did not know him, and if you're really seeking with your hearts, can I tell you, I believe that if you'll open your heart, that God will come in. He said, behold, I stand at your heart's door and I knock. Here's what's interesting. Listen to me very carefully. I saw that verse in a brand new way this week. You know, the Bible says that Jesus would leave the 99 and find the one. You know the stories of how there, the parable of the prodigal son, how he ran and he put his arms around his son, he ran to him. I believe that if Jesus has to take one step to get your heart, he'll take it. If he has to take 999 steps to get your heart, he'll take it. If he has to take 9,999 steps, he'll take it and on and on and on and on. You build a wall around your heart, He'll jump over it. Come on. Because he's trying to reveal himself to you. He's trying to help you understand the kind of depth and the length and the breadth of God's great love that he has just for you this morning. And he stands right there and he's knocking. And he said, if anyone will open the door, he said, I'll come in. So his heads are bowed, eyes are closed. No one's looking around you here this morning. And you're saying, I need to open my heart's door. I need to let Jesus in. It's been a long time. I, I once served Jesus. I once let Christ in my life, but I haven't been serving him. I don't, I don't really don't know where I'd spend eternity this morning. Then this appeals for you. Or maybe you're here and you're invited. You stumbled in the doors. You're just looking for a little inspiration, a little hope, something to get you through the week. Can I tell you, Jesus is your answer. It's not just a little inspiration, a little dabble, do you? This is something that'll stay with you for eternity. 
but he's waiting for you to open the door. You say, Pastor, how do I open the door? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, there's that word again. Whosoever believeth upon him, you believe in your heart. He said, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Saved from all your trespasses. Saved from all your false motives. Saved from all of your wrongdoing. Saved from all of your sin. All of it. And he'll come in and he'll throw it as far as the east is from the west. And he'll remember it against you. No more. It's gone. Why would anybody do that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And if you will believe upon him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you hadn't already, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to further connect with us here at Faith Chapel, visit us online at faithchapelst.com or on any social media platform at Faith Chapel SD. We hope to see you real soon.